0: Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the podcast studio, joined by Mike. We're back together again um, as part of our COVID-19 online learning series. And we're going to be recording today for Theology 442, History of the Reformations. We're recording on the last book used in the course, um, which is my book, An Uncompromising Gospel, Uh, lutheranism's first identity crisis and lessons for today and so we are going to be making our way through that book with a couple of sessions maybe three sessions and uh, discussing uh, not every every piece of information that's in it but big picture um, why this is used at the point it is and what the the book is meant to get at um mike everybody doing all right at home
1: um, yeah, we're doing actually pretty good, uh, you know, so for my life, take out driving kids around, that's like three hours a day. So yeah. I have more time and my wife teaching kindergarten went from like 10, 11 hour days to like four hour days. And so, you know, things are getting cleaned and basements are being organized and stuff like that. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, good. I, I mean, love I'm, to I
1: mean, I want to kill my children. Yeah. But um, actually, they've been they've been okay.
0: Well, good. I'd love to say we, that we were getting clean and organized, but <laughs> the opposite seems seems to be uh, seems to be happening. Um, well, we hope all of our listeners are doing well, and that students, you are doing well, as well as we are wrapping up the semester. Um, that you are able to stay on top of your work. Uh, that you're navigating what we know is a a different situation than what we planned on being in in this spring semester of 2020 Um, maybe mike we can just pick up then and talk about in this session the the first section of the book and the first section of the book is simply setting the stage um, something as i had been researching in grad school and for my dissertation and for other projects that had really struck me um, as i looked especially at the uh, disagreements that broke out after luther's death is if if someone had it known better, I would I would think that if you ask someone, so at, right after Luther's death, uh, do you think they fought over the basic teachings um, that he had set forth? That Most people would say no, probably about other stuff. Um, but as you research it, many of the debates actually were about just that, um, the basic teachings uh, that Luther had set forth from the scriptures about things like Christian freedom and, um, original sin and free will, uh, if we have it about the doctrine of justification about our relationship to scripture and scripture alone. And, and so that, that was very interesting to me. And I noticed, and uh, those things
1: are not mutually exclusive when you right, fight for the little things, you an- eventually understand you're fighting for the, for
0: yeah. The and almost thing, all right. of these play off of each other, these controversies and connected to that. Um, and I think part of what you're getting at with that, Mike is, uh, that in these two, one one uh work of Luther's that would sometimes come up as um, either being appealed to or kind of belittled by the different parties uh, waging kind of polemical war here um, would be Luther's bondage of the will. And I think uh, something that has struck me as I study bondage of the will is how much of it you can see, at least in a uh, a nation nascent, am I saying that right? Yeah. Beginning Nace, form. Nascent. nascent form um, in the Heidelberg Disputation. Uh, these documents where Luther talks particularly about these things and where people sometimes are uncomfortable with them because of how clear he is on these things. Um, so the Heidelberg Disputation, for instance, already begins talking about free will and that good works can even be mortal sins if not done in, in faith. Uh because of bondage of the will, Erasmus clu- accuses Luther of inflating original sin, uh, making too much of it. And so these documents became, to me, a helpful lens to look to and say, here's some things that um, pretty clearly stated uh, what Luther had in mind. And uh, the formula of Concord will adopt then a lot of the themes that are in those two documents, especially on the bondage of the will. As we talk about those then, and and I'm going to throw it to to you, Mike, in a second, but for students, as we're talking about these two writings, we're not talking about the only place that Luther talks about these themes. There are two that I chose because I think they're particularly poignant. The Heidelberg Disputation is short and sweet. It gets right to the point, Um, and it's very early in Luther's career. Um, The uh, bondage of the will uh, is still on you know, somewhat early in Luther's career, but I would say in his middle years, the settling in years, uh, it's longer, but it's uh, one of the, the two works that he said he he really wanted, you know, not to be destroyed at his death. He, he kind of said he wished all the others would be destroyed. But it's not that these are the only places that talk about this. It's just that they're particularly helpful, I think. And I think there's been a renaissance and in interest uh, in these in the last decade or two, um, but they've been often neglected mm-hmm. um, in <clears throat> Luther studies, and I would say just in different church traditions, especially well. the Heidelberg right. Disputation. I would agree to that, um, and it kind of serves as a litmus test to uh, the Heidelberg Disputation because the um, usually sometimes when people have real issues with it, it it becomes uh, it's revelatory of of other issues that they have with um, Lutheran theology. And keep in mind. Um, from my point of view, and I'm, I'm guessing from Mike's, I'll let him speak for himself. But as we, I talk as a a Lutheran theologian, um, when I say, you know, that these are key themes in Luther, what I'm, I'm also convinced myself that these are thus Pauline, especially themes. These are themes that come out in Paul's epistles, but this is the teachings of the New Testament, right? This is, so I'm not talking as if Luther just came up with these things, um, what, what I see these as being is extremely helpful distillations of, especially I would say, Pauline Christianity. Um, maybe with that, Mike, I'll just throw it to you for anything that comes to mind as, as I've kind of talked too much here at the beginning. Um, and otherwise, we can just kind of shortly maybe hit on the Heidelberg Disputation and yeah, the Yeah, let
1: me piggyback a little bit on that last thing you said about. And try to tell my students more and more because we don't have, all have Lutheran students, a student completely Lutheran student body, of course. And say so when we talk about Lutheranism and we're pro Lutheranism, like, sorry, but that's <laughs> we're pro Lutheranism. I don't. We're not gonna. We're not gonna necessarily hide that, but we are careful not to say, "Oh, Lutheranism is so much better and everybody else is a bunch of idiots." Is is to say this. We are very much trying to, to be what the church has always been. Um, and that's good, bad, and ugly, obviously. But when we talk about Lutheranism, we're saying, this is what the Bible says. The Augsburg Confession is a confession for everybody. It's not a polemical thing, necessarily. And so when, when, you, when you think about that and say, Luther's really just reiterating what Paul said. And I think you can even say, and certainly we can say, well, Paul Paul's letters are commentary on the Gospels right and so it's not like and sometimes people fall into that trap and they say well Paul was saying something different than Jesus well you know does he say it in a different way sure because it's a different it's a different audience it's a different avenue it's a different uh time and occasion a different medium yeah. too he's writing epistles
0: yeah. he's not Jesus's recorded words of his words and actions
1: uh, sermons and actions yeah. and so i think you can go you can go Jesus uh, to St. Paul commentary on the Gospels. Throw in Augustine and the Fathers there, uh, and Augustine there's too. Uh, yeah, and there's some mistakes there, of course, as they are going to be in Luther too. Um, and, and then for Luther, the Heidelberg, and then just to talk about your two documents that we that you we brought up, Heidelberg being very much here is here is A B C, therefore D, and then when the, you know, what hits the fan, he's got to explain this in a, and he's got to, he's got to explain it towards a person who is attacking him. And so it becomes then, um, it becomes the bondage, the bound choice or the bondage of the will. But just, it, it's important for us to say, you know, when Jesus, for instance, talks about, um, that dead trees don't produce good fruit, right? Okay. What does that mean? Well, St. Paul's going to explain that, that thought, even if he's not going to talk necessarily uh, always about that verse. And he's going to say, you're either dead in your sin or you're alive in Christ, right? And so how is Luther going to deal with that same thought? Well, he's going to be talking about the bound will. Um, He is going to highlight the two kinds of righteousness from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, And so there is a red line Right I mean, and and I mean,
0: read the, read the early chapters of John, yeah. and Jesus is, and John and Jesus are perfectly clear on the, the will. You
1: know? and I think that's that's Lutheranism at its best is just trying to do that, right and and trying not to go too far the other ways. And I hope our students at least appreciate our attempt to do that. But I get kind of irritated when somebody says, "Well, this is Pauline's theology, and that's different than because Jesus never said this. Well, he did. You just got to look a little clearer. Right.
0: And, uh, and so maybe if we can make our way into these two documents, I just want to briefly hit on again why this book at this point in the class. Um, we just have been talking about confessionalization. I recorded a podcast session by myself um, on that, and then I had done a couple before that by myself on O'Malley. Um, and what do we call these periods and how they work? Um, and what this is is to give students a taste for, um, particularly within the Lutheran tradition, because it is the tradition of the college and it's the tradition that's uh, the, the most of our students hold, um, how these processes of making your way to confessions um, tended to, to work um, or what it was like after the first generation reformers died. In the last session, I talked a lot about second-generation reformers, and and in order to do that, though, I think it's especially helpful to look at how it happened pertaining to specific teachings, right? Um, because this is a it's a theology class, it's history of the Reformations, but it's T H E 442, um, and so to look how that um, sometimes people will talk about right the evolution of doctrine. And, and as Lutherans, we wouldn't necessarily hold to an, an evolution of doctrine. We, we believe this, the Scriptures have given us God's teaching. But there is definitely a process at which um, the church at different times comes to clarity on doctrines, right? Um, that it dives back into the Scriptures and, and gets at what the Scriptures are, are teaching. And we see that in, in, in every age. Um, and so I think this provides... A route to doing that. Um, maybe if we just take first, um, I'll give a little background on the Heidelberg Disputation. Um, then, Mike, I'll throw it to you to see why uh, you find it useful. I know it's something you've used um, in your own teaching and work, and I think even with apologetics, you and Luke Thompson have used it, um, I believe.
1: I think it's it, there's some helpful lessons there that are applied to evangelism, I think. Yeah.
0: yeah, so I'll throw it to you in just a, a moment on that then. But the, the Heidelberg Disputation is given when Luther is uh, Luther had an administrative role within his uh, monastic order, um, the Augustinians. And to give him a chance to kind of say what, what he was teaching and what was going on in, in Wittenberg, um, he is given the opportunity to, in Heidelberg, um, which would be one of the longest trips he takes besides to Rome, mm-hmm. Uh, to present to this meeting of his order. Um, There will be some very important people there. Uh, One who will become an important reformer in his own right, especially in Strasbourg, and then he'll make his way to England, is Martin Buzer. Um, And so when we did Swiss and English Reformation stuff, that name student sometimes came up, Martin Buzer. Well, this will be where he's kind of one for the gospel, if we want to speak of it that way. But this is going to take place... Luther is going to be in Heidelberg to present um, these theses on the twenty-sixth of April, fifteen eighteen. At this meeting that took place every three years, as a provincial vicar, he was expected to be there, um, and he went with letters of safe conduct from his elector, and he he gives both theological theses and then uh, philosophical and. For the purposes of this class, we don't focus as much on the philosophical, although those can be very interesting, especially if people have um, an interest in talking about where Luther falls vis-a-vis Plato and Aristotle or nominalism and all that fun stuff, Occam. But uh, there's 28 theological theses, and I think the bookends uh, give you a sense for why we might be drawn to this as kind of a, an important breakthrough document for Luther in his early years. Um, the first is the law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. So Luther then tosses out with that all work righteousness, uh, or at least that's the repercussions of it. Uh, the 28th thesis is, the, and this is my favorite and one of my favorite statements that Luther ever made, Um, And he's channeling a little bit of gust in here, I think. But he says, The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. So he contrasts how human beings love and human relationships, which can be used as examples or to help us understand God's love. But he hits at how much beyond our love God's love is in that in no way is it reciprocal, um, but it's the justification of the ungodly. It's when we were still yet enemies, Christ came to ransom and redeem us. Uh, What a powerful image that is. Um, I'll maybe toss it to you, Mike. How have you found—do you disagree with me that this is an important document— um, if not, how have you found it useful or incorporated it? Anything you do with your students with it? Anything at all? I'll, I'll toss well, up.
1: yeah, I mean, I, I've started to say, uh, you know, what is my definition? What is the definition of law and gospel as, as quoting Luther here, right? That the gospel or the law is the law says do this and it is never done. And the gospel says believe this and it is already done. Um, I, I think it's, it's helpful for uh, mortal and venial sins, Kind of thing. I mean, it's a little, that's always kind of tricky, but to think yeah. about basically mortal sins are what sins are due to hell, venial sins are what's, w- w- the ones that can be forgiven. And so we spend endless time trying to think about which one's mortal and which one's venial. Yeah. And, and somewhat, sometimes that can be somewhat sort of beneficial. But finally, he is saying, you know, if you trust yourself over God, that would be mortal. And so then, And this is where I think it touches on apologetics a little bit, is to say, if if something bad happens to me, so we're in the problem of evil, that must mean that God hates me, or that God doesn't exist, or something like that. But, and here's where the epistemological question comes in, God says what is good and what is bad. So notice the power of God's word to say, to declare, to create out of nothing, right? And he may take your good deeds, for instance. I mean, they're just awesome. Like, I mean, you have you have your own soup kitchen out of your basement. You are constantly giving to every every um, every charity that sends you. Uh,
0: Never miss a blood drive.
1: Yeah, sends you um, uh, those little uh, stickers for your for your letters, the the mailing <laughs> mailing <laughs> labels. And um, but if you don't trust in God but rather trust in yourself being righteous by these laws then those good deeds are actually evil and the bad crap that happens to you if if it is used as God's alien law to drive you then to lack and trust in yourself and the world to him it's actually good right and so what, and this is where finally the payoff is that you look through the kind of the lens of the... I, when I teach, the cl- teach classes this, Theology of the Cross and Theology of the Glory, which is the basic uh, shorthand for the Heidelberg Disputation, you imagine putting on lenses, you put on glasses, and you see either through the cl- cross or through glory. And if you see through the cross, you say, that awful, awful thing on the cross actually was the ultimate good. And that really opens up quite a bit now back to kind of the main point of, of where we're going in this book is to say, if it's truly only God who does this, then what about the will? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and notice how, Oh geez, I do it too. Uh, we're always, our default position is trying to figure out what we can do. What is this life lesson that I am, that I am trying to learn here? um, are you really telling me that I don't do anything at all? It's just so darn hard for us to get over it. And Even if you cognitively know that, like I know that I'm saved by God alone or whatever, usually the next thought in your mind is, well, what do I do now, yeah. right? And how many people in the pews have gotten so bored with the gospel and they just want to be told how to live a better life now? It's our default position. So Luther, in this very philosophical but also theological it's a disputation. These are theses. These are short sentences. They could be debated, yeah. right? To be debated. Um, it's it's not very pastoral in that sense, and yet, oh, probably the most pastoral thing he <laughs> wrote, if you ask me. And but then it becomes somewhat polemical in in the bondage of the will. But if you see, if you see the Heidelberg disputation and the bondage of the will in the background, and then you start listening to table talk you start listening to or reading his other argu- uh, uh, other books uh, or letters or whatever you start to see where he's coming from and it's it quite frankly i don't i'll speak for myself here i was probably a pastor for many years before it really 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 hit home i yeah,
0: say so this oh definitely the same thing for me
1: like i could i could think about it cognitively but every other sermon i'm like this is what they want to hear and it took a very long time for me to get that. And and, and now as I look back on some of the parishioners that I had, I had not trouble with, that's a bad way to think about it, but you know, didn't quite reach or whatever, or that were frustrating to me, they were still in a concept of righteousness by law and they just couldn't shake it. That was the issue. It wasn't really their marriage. It wasn't really that they were mad at me for whatever reason. That was the reason. They just really didn't understand grace. And... When you get to these post-Lutheran uh, troubles, I mean, I I think that may be the heart of it, right? How how can I redeem at least a little bit of the natural will that that humans are endowed with? Uh, that kind of stuff.
0: And 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 that's going to happen with Melanchthon to a degree, yeah. <clears throat> um. I, I I will just I'll point out one more thesis from the Heidelberg Disputation, and then we can maybe talk bondage of the will. But Mike, you brought you brought up an important point of free will. I'm um, in thesis 13 which is the first of a few in a row that he talks about free will he says free will after the fall and I love I love this exists in name only um, as long as it does what it is able to do it commits a mortal sin and what he's getting at there and he'll unpack that when he says it in, in following theses that it only has a passive capacity is that you're not going to come to faith by your own decision Um Moses did not write Genesis to basically defend Adam and Eve's free will, um, but rather Genesis teaches uh, that Adam and Eve have no free will in spiritual matters; they're they're dead in trespasses and, and sins. Uh, and so, um, this is a real thumb in the eye to all human religion, because all human religion operates usually on one of two things, or or both. I would say. The law as the mechanism for getting right with God or to heaven or to nirvana, you pick it, getting better karma, you know. Um, and secondly, uh, you making the right decisions or determining the right things or having sufficient willpower um, to navigate often through that law, right? And um, both of these become attacks upon the gospel. Um, It becomes an attack upon the gospel when it's thought that I have to accept it for it to be true. Um, It's an attack upon the gospel when the gospel just becomes the springboard to get back to the law. Uh, And so I think this uh, is a very important point, and it's one that still does not sit well with us, and it does not sit well even with many Lutherans. Uh, We so want that free will, and you throw America into the mix, and it just gets even more difficult because in I love America but we are a choosing people right we are a will yourself to you know uh, to your future people don't depend on anybody yeah and and so this can be even more um, bothersome to us and so far as why do we not have that free will well that's tied to original sin they were dead in trespasses and sins. And so when original sin becomes a fight later, someone might look at the Heidelberg Disputation and say, well, I don't even see the phrase original sin all that much or at all in there. Well, the free will talk is the original sin talk, and those debates are going to be very connected. If we can continue to connect them, then maybe we can just briefly um, talk about the bondage of the will. That's going to be a little bit harder to talk about briefly, but I think it's one that we've talked about a fair amount on the podcast if people want to to search the website and look back through for stuff. Um, But this is a bit of a longer work. Uh, I would say if anybody wants to read The Bondage of the Will on their own, I would encourage them to read it backwards um, because of the the way that they argued at that time. Uh, Luther's real argument comes at the end then because first he has to show he understands Erasmus' argument. Then he kind of has to tear it apart, and then he starts to build his own. Um, But I would really recommend uh, the... um, I'm not saying it's the best translation of of the bondage of the will necessarily, although it's not a bad one, Um, but I would recommend uh, perhaps the volume that has Erasmus and Luther in the same volume, or at least getting your your hands on what Erasmus wrote that started all this, because if you read Erasmus first, it's a whole lot easier to follow Luther's arguments what he's getting at too. But what had happened um, is Desiderius Erasmus, who was a great humanist that we've talked about before on this podcast, who... uh, you know, is the one who comes out with the, the Greek New Testament and the Greek New Testament kind of book um, that the reformers were using. Um, he is one who was seen to be wanting reform in the church. He was not a reformer, I think it's it's fair to say. Mike, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but he did want to see reform, although it was largely moral reform.
1: Yeah, if anything, within the within the church. Although Luther wanted that too, but yeah, more of a moral reform. A return to apostolic simplicity. And and clean up the simony and the... Right. Yeah.
0: Um, but very learned man. Probably the, when someone thought of scholars in that time, um, he would have been probably in the top three of people who would have come to mind as con- among contemporaries as being a, a scholar, what it is to be a, a scholar. We can think of people in the American setting that are like that. You, you talk about academia and the prototypical academic comes to mind, Um, he is eventually going to be pressured to write against Luther, um, to either prove he's a good Catholic, Roman Catholic, um, or to just side with Luther. And so he's going to, because he's pressured write against Luther, and he's going to choose what he thinks will be a bit of a tangential type of, you know, area to attack, and he is going to attack then on the issue of will. Um, and Luther is going to delay responding. I think it's like 11 months, if I remember, that he waits to respond. And his friends are telling him to reply. His wife is telling him to reply. And uh, and when Luther finally replies, he says, you know what? Good job. I have to c- congratulate you, Erasmus. You went right for the jugular.
1: You got to the heart of the matter. Yep. Yeah.
0: And so this becomes an importantly, a very important work by Luther um, and for Luther, because it's going to clarify the position on the will. And if you don't get the will right, you can't get justification right. If you don't get original sin right, you can't get justification right. So it's really one extended commentary of what are the implications of the Bible's teaching of justification by grace through faith alone. Um, and for Luther, that is that we are purely passive in salvation, we simply receive it. Um, now, that doesn't live in us. It's not that we never then do anything, um. But when it comes to salvation, it is purely received, right? God's love is not reciprocal, um. And the reason it must be that way is because of original sin that we are dead in trespasses and sins, um. And because of our lack of free will, um, we have a free will that can that can choose to sin and to die, but it cannot choose salvation. Um, why? Well, Lazarus. Jesus didn't say to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out if you want to. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And those words brought him out um, the same way as God brought creation into being. So also he brings us to faith. Um, some... Which goes
1: back to Heidelberg. God creates what he is pleasing to him.
0: Yeah. yeah and uh, Jim Nestigan has, ha- I've, I've heard speak about this and I've read him on this and it can be very helpful. He really says this is a pastoral letter he's sending to Erasmus. He sees Erasmus as being lost, that you can only end up in despair with the type of Christianity Erasmus is putting forward. And so while Luther is being polemical, you know, he's going to do things like, you know, call him names and whatever else, um, he really, at the end of the day, wants to see Erasmus at peace, right, through the forgiveness of sins. Um, but he's very blunt, as was the style of his, his age. Um, trying to see if I'm leaving on any background or context that I that I shouldn't. I think I've painted the picture. Yeah, that's huh? good enough. Um, so maybe Mike, uh, anything you use the bondage of the will for? Anything that you think any particular takeaway from it? Um, students will be getting a sense for it here. Anything you found helpful in reading it? Any yeah. tips for anybody?
1: Yeah, when you're reading it, when the, I'll just say there's some things that clicked for me, and I go, okay, now I because it's it's hard. It's hard to 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 go through. Um, you know, one point that we would all make, and Erasmus makes, is well, why would God? Ask something of humanity that he knows it cannot produce, right?
0: And that's a big argument. God wouldn't command it if we can't do it.
1: Now, this is very simple because God does this all the time. <laughs> he says, be perfect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, uh, I right? Uh, he says, and this is helpful with doubting Thomas. He says, stop doubting and believe, knowing full well that Thomas can't do it on his own. <laughs> Whatever God demands of you, he provides for you in Christ. Right. And, and I I think another thing that, so, so God says, be righteous, be perfect. And then I will give you the righteousness. I will create in you what is pleasing to me. Um, also then I will create the faith that is now, can you reject it? Certainly. I suppose that that is a possibility. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't make sense to, to, to our reason or better yet, we really want to, we want to put the things of God, the things above, into our puny little brains and into um, our categories. I think another thing to think about is to—because uh, it seems very offensive. And, and I've heard people say this. It seems very offensive that God would, would not give us free will, although that's not true. He did. We're the ones that screwed it up. Uh, uh, some people will say, uh, it, it doesn't seem to be right that God very loving that God would treat us this way, uh, this kind of stuff. And I go, well, just keep pulling. And this is where you get the idea of this being a pastoral lover, uh, letter to Erasmus. Just take your worldview here. Take, take your side of its story and play it all the way out to its, tell us to its end, right? What does that say about God? That he is dangling heaven above uh, this puny little human being that cannot jump and reach uh, uh, this gift that God is uh, dangling uh, above them. Um, he knows full well that they cannot that they cannot do these things, and uh, it seems actually very cruel. and And the example I use is uh, you know I bring my newborn baby home from the hospital in the car seat, you know, and I put. Uh, her on the front porch. And then I say, uh, dear little daughter, I hope one day that you can make a decision to be a part of this family and follow the rules. Knock when you're ready to make your decision close the door. I mean, that would be terrible. How old was Abigail when you let her in? <laughs> uh, we, we reluctantly <laughs> let her in. Um, we said something to Sophie, our youngest, the other day about she like living somewhere else or whatever. And then she's like, well, I'll just go live with somebody else. And I'm like, well, how are you going to get there? She's like, well, I'll just call them. I'm like, well, you can't use your phone. Cause we pay for it and we're going through this. And she used the phrase like uh, uh, child endangerment and all this kind of stuff. She was very well versed in the, the laws that we would be breaking if we uh, kicked her out of the house. Anyway, um, <clears throat> this would be horrific. And so I, I think in the same way, although the analogy is not perfect, Like a parent shows love first, teaches love, teaches trust, even gives the language of trust say, I love you, daddy, say, please, and thank you. So, God's word acts that way, except in a much more supernatural way to actually create out of nothing this faith in in this child. Any other way would make God a terror, a terrorist. I mean he'd be terrorizing us. It's not just that he would be distant and angry. He would be terrorizing us by by giving us something that we could not do. Now, I understand logically, you know, this this is is problematic because uh then then is I might just everything's determined and I have no free will or whatever and that's where it's helpful. It's not it doesn't explain everything, but it's helpful the things above and things below that Luther uses that won't you know, we're not talking about if you have a ham sandwich or a tuna sandwich for lunch here, shut up. We're talking about these things that you as a sinful enemy of God cannot do because you're a jerk. And that's why free will discussion is always an original sin discussion.
0: Yep. And, and so Luther's going to basically say to Erasmus, you know, this reads like you kind of found a concordance. And he just looked up choose and command and all the passages and tried to, uh, you know, lump them up against me. And what will be an important development here, as Luther will say, is those are Bible passages, but you're not reading them right. And so the law gospel distinction will become very important in this as well. Uh, Erasmus uses, if you want to understand what Erasmus is arguing, an illustration he uses that I find helpful as he says, imagine a sailor who's brought through a storm. Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, he strains at the oars and at the sails, and, um, and he makes it through, and he says, God saved me. And then Erasmus said, but it's not as if the sailor did nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what you see is, is Erasmus is not trying to throw out God's grace, but he's trying to get man into mm-hmm. it, right? Um, so we don't want to oversimplify it and make it as though Erasmus saw no point at which God's grace or love mattered, mm-hmm. um, but it's to wedge it in. Um, Luther then will use an, an illustration that I think is helpful too, and he says, Luther says, man is like a beast of burden, either ridden by God or the devil, mm-hmm. right? and the two contend for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that I think is helpful, and we experience that in the Christian life. Ah, that's
1: very Pauline Yeah,
0: right? it's Romans 7. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and even that God uses us in spite of our sinfulness um like a rider of a limp horse right <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of pulls to mm-hmm. the think of pushing a shopping cart you know in Meyer or whatever store you go to and it's got that one wheel and it pulls to the right well you're going to get your grocery shopping done and you're going to get you know but it's going to be a little more difficult mm-hmm. than it would have been otherwise because you chose that shopping cart well god uses us in a a similar way um all right, so we, we've got these two kind of covered to give you some background on that. And I think in the next session, we're going to look at the um, controversies that break out, and I'm debating if we'll do the lessons or not. But I would just reiterate for students, so at this point, be keeping in mind as you move on to the next part of the book, um, themes of original sin, free will, justification, good works and what's their role, right, and how do they affect our standing with God. These are the kind of things that Luther is emphasizing, and then we're going to see how there are debates over that.
1: Can I give you one last thing? Yep. Um, It's kind of an overarching thing. I've heard people specifically about uh, highlighting this bound will thing. Very good Christians saying this. Very good Lutheran Christians saying this. Even about the theology of the cross and saying it's just too pessimistic. And my response to that is it's actually pure optimism. Uh, When you have pessimism of yourself, that's only when you can start to be optimistic. You may even use the the addict analogy there of hitting rock bottom before you can actually be optimistic. If it is Christ doing it all for you and you really believe it, I'm not just saying you say it. I mean, you really actually think this man, that is freedom. That is freedom. And if you're trying to hold on to some, some optimism in yourself, um, you may, you may like that language that is flowery and nice, but I'm telling you, there's a different kind of freedom, and let me tell you about it. You have not yet known what optimism is. And so my uh, response to somebody who says this is pessimism is, uh, it was say, um, I would say, I don't think you know what optimism is. Uh, you don't know what freedom is. Good enough? Yep. All right. They should probably, we should
0: wrap it up, and they should probably just let the bird fly. All right.